So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is God's word. So uh, this, this sermon that we're going through today is the conclusion of the series that we've been working through called Serving Community. And so over the past few weeks, we've heard from Andy and even our, our pal Ray uh, talking about ways in which we should be serving as we are members of the faith, as we are followers of Jesus. And we talked about a lot of different methods for what it looks like to serve, um, how we serve people by getting to know them in a really meaningful, purposeful way. We talked about serving in interrelational contexts. How do you serve your friends? How do you serve your family? How do you serve your coworkers? We even talked about broad scale serving. What does it look like for the church as an entity to be serving the community and the world around it? And so we've talked about serving a lot. And as, as the closer to this sermon or to this series, the question I really want to entertain is why? Like, honestly, why bother? Um, the answer could quickly become, oh, well, because we're Christians and Christians are supposed to serve. And like, yeah, that's, that's a fair answer. But I think on a, on a lousy day, that doesn't feel like the most satisfactory answer. I do this because I'm supposed to. Well, I don't know. It doesn't scratch the itch necessarily. So I, 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 became, I came to faith when I was about 15, um, which obviously I'm very grateful for. <laughs> And I started, uh, I became a part of a little Bible study at my high school when I was like a sophomore. When I got to the U of A, I started going to a campus ministry there. Uh, I've been a part of just the most random string of Bible studies at people's homes and just friends coming together. Like I've, I've walked with a lot of Christians for the past 15 years of being a Christian and I've seen people like really, really grow in their faith and really just grow into a deeper uh, appreciation for Jesus's place in their life. And I've seen people kind of just, you know, just straight line, just never really growing, never really declining, just kind of at this happy medium. And I've seen people fade and I've seen people fall. And I think if you asked me when I first became a Christian what was going to make people leave the faith, or at the very least just kind of just, just get bored or disconnected with it, I would have told you that it was probably like the party scene, or uh, maybe they're going to watch too many videos that atheists put on YouTube where they talk about how God's not rational. But I don't think that was actually it. 
I don't think most of the people I've known who have kind of wandered from the folds in a way where they just kind of got jaded about Jesus, I don't think that was it. I think it was something that I have kind of started calling Christian fatigue, which is where you're just kind of doing the same thing for a long time. You call yourself a Christian, so you place this uh, steady list of expectations on yourself. And you say, well, I'm a Christian, so um, I have to love people. And I especially have to love people who are the rejects and the outcasts of the world, who are often slightly more difficult to love. And I have to forgive people, even when people do really terrible things to me and to the people that I love. And I have to admit when I'm wrong, even when I really don't want to, or when I feel like the person I wronged doesn't deserve for me to say that to them. And I have to forgive, and I have to work to reconcile. And then there's all these standards. I have to walk by standards of personal morality. I have to not overindulge in things that are you know, bad for me. I have to not act out of anger. I have to avoid you know, sexual sin. Like, it just starts to feel like a long laundry list of things to do. And I think that eventually some people just say, this is a lot. And I'm a little tired. And the steps out the door aren't that hard. And we see them often. And so the question I want us to ask ourselves as I'm working through this is, what is keeping you going? Is it anything? Is it something? I think we can be honest about it. I think we have to ask, I mean, beyond asking ourselves, we have to ask God God, what keeps my gas tank full when my mileage gets high? What keeps me going when I'm tired and when things are difficult? How do I keep serving? Question mark. So that's where we'll start. I want to start by sharing a couple stories. I'm going to share three stories throughout the, uh, the sermon. Two of them are from the Bible. Uh, one, not so much, but we'll get into it. The first is a story that Jesus shared with his disciples when they were talking to him about forgiveness. They said, Jesus, how much are you supposed to forgive people? Uh, Jesus gave them a number that was a lot higher than they wanted it to be. Um, they were really bummed about that. And then he tells them a story. He tells them a story about a king and the king was settling all of the debts with all of the servants that he had. And you get the sense that, I mean, he's a king. He's probably got hundreds, if not thousands of servants. And so he calls one servant to forgive him. And it's so interesting. The number that Jesus uses to, uh, to uh, quantify the debt that this man had was absurd, it would be like saying, uh, imagine Zach owed Brian $10 billion. It's like, that's, that's, that's crazy. Like, why, would, why is Brian have $10 billion to lend? To, like, it's, it's such an absurd number to, to throw out there. But the thing that the disciples were supposed to consider wasn't the, the mathematical nature of the number, but that it was an incredibly large debt. And the king responded justly and fairly to this man's debt. He said, you can't pay this off. 
I'm going to take you and your family, and I'm going to sell them into slavery so you can pay off your debt with your very lives, which most likely was a pretty common practice at this time in history. And the man falls on his knees, and he begs the king, please have mercy on me. I'll, I'll, pay, I'll pay everything back as soon as I can. And the king feels this sense of like, some, some translations called it pity. I prefer compassion because he sees this man and he's moved. And he says, you know what? Forget it. Your, your debt is paid. He releases him from prison. He's a free man. All of his debts are paid for. And it says that this man left prison and on the very same day found a servant who owed him money, not his servant to, to represent that there was like an authority imbalance, but these men were actually peers. Could you guys put the photo back up real quick? Um, <laughs> this is such a silly photo to me. Um, but the response was he found a man who owed him money the man, said, the man, in a very similar, very parallel sense, begged and asked for forgiveness. And it was, such, it was so much smaller in comparison. But the man said, please, please forgive me. I'll pay it back when I can. And instead of forgiving him, instead of returning with the same level of forgiveness that he was just offered, he grabbed him by the throat and started choking and threatening him. And when word of that got back to the king who had given uh, him so much forgiveness just earlier that day, the king decided, all right, you're, you're a massive hypocrite. You're going to ask me for mercy and you have no desire to give it yourself. Your debt is back on your head. He threw him back into prison. That was the story that Jesus told about forgiveness. Now, the moral of this story seems to be pretty straightforward, it sounds like it's basically saying kind of like this uh, quid pro quo, like this for that type of system of morality. If you're forgiven, then you forgive. If you're done X social thing, then you do X social thing in return. But I would argue that it's actually even more demanding than that. Because something Jesus says, the last thing that Jesus says is so also my heavenly father will do this very thing to you unless each of you forgives your brother from their hearts. See, that's where it gets complicated. It's not just forgiveness. It's not, this is not him teaching people how to set up legal contracts. He's saying, you, it doesn't matter if you just forgive him. You actually have to forgive him internally from your heart. And that's difficult. Jesus loves to play with this kind of balance of like action versus heart posture. He says it earlier in his preaching where he talks about how, hey, it, it doesn't matter if you look at a woman lustfully, even if you don't touch her, even if you don't solicit her for sex, even if you don't uh, take a picture of her and look at it creepily uh, when, when she's gone. It doesn't matter if you don't do any of those things. If you look at her and in your heart there is lust, you've committed adultery. Your action is not as significant as the posture of your heart. 
He also says, it doesn't matter if you take a sword and you stab somebody. It doesn't matter if you hit him over the head with a rock. If you look at him and you treat him and you feel hatred in your heart against him, you're a murderer and you've killed that person in your heart. See, this is, this is clearly uh, an example of Jesus being more concerned with the heart than the action. Now, this doesn't make actions irrelevant. That's a terrible thing to take away from this. But to Jesus, it's clear that it's not enough for the hands to imitate the actions of our Father, but we need our hearts to imitate the love of our Father as well. Jesus wasn't teaching us a social responsibility of debt forgiveness. He was teaching us how to walk in mercy and in love, which honestly is a lot more difficult. Here's my second story. Uh, in the beginning of Revelation, last book of the Bible, the one with all the weird dragons and stuff, uh, there's a much more accessible few chapters, which is an address to uh, a number of churches that were pretty well populated in the first like little period after Jesus had uh, resurrected and ascended. And one of the churches was the church of Ephesus. And this was a pretty significant, historically, a very significant church. Just you put the photo up for me, please? Um, and the church of Ephesus uh, was, was praised at the beginning of this letter. They said, I see your works and the good that you're doing. And it commended them. It said, look, you guys are doing the right things. Your preaching is on point. Your theology is fantastic. You're taking care of the poor. You're standing strong in the faith, even though there's persecution all around you. And yet, this church had a fatal flaw, which was that it lacked love. I mean, that's a, that's a devastating story. That's so depressing to be on the receiving end of that. It's like, look, you guys are doing the right. You're, you're feeding the poor. You're, uh, you're, you're, you're preaching fantastic sermons. You're, you're not listening to false teachers. You're, uh, you're, 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 your entrance is clean. Your parking lot has very clear lines so you know where to park every time. Like everything you're doing is spot on, but you lost love. And the bummer is that the author of this letter did not see this as a minor fault. The response to that was, remember your first love, because if you don't, I will take the lampstand that is within you. Basically saying, I'll tear down your church, because a loveless church is no church at all, even if you look like it from the outside. The interesting thing is that these two sins, or I'm sorry, these two stories had the exact same error. You had a, a servant who was unwilling to look lovingly on an equal servant for debt and was unwilling to forgive. And then you had a church in Ephesus that was doing everything right at surface level. But even though they looked completely different, their sin was exactly the same. And it was that they had completely lost sight of exactly what should be driving us as followers of Jesus. They had lost love. 
And because their sin was the same, according to both of these stories, both of them in the words of Jesus himself, because their sin was the same, so was their punishment. The servant was told that because of your lack of love and your unforgiveness, you'll be taken away to prison with torturers. And the second story, again, like I said, threatens to remove the lampstand that they had within them. If we're still not convinced, we can look to 1 John, which says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. There should be a fair level of reflection there when we think about that. I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I am a creature of habit and routine. I sometimes get stuck on just the actions themselves. And I can look very, very convincing as a good Christian with very little to no love in my heart. Maybe I unsettled you as I said that. Basically, if we don't have love, that we could actually be considering that maybe we're not even filled with the Spirit. That's a scary thing to think about. And I'm not trying to scare anyone. Because here's the encouragement. If the response that we have to this is that we're weak, that's a fantastic response to have. Because Jesus loves teaching weak people how to follow him. It's really the only person he can teach anything at all. So if we're weak and if we're recognizing that we are prone to unloving, good. It means that you're probably being honest with yourself. But embrace that weakness. Ask ourselves, let's, let's, let's ask ourselves, how would a child best learn how to love because maybe we are finding ourselves like not as loving as we'd want to be, but we want to challenge ourselves in that. So the question we'd ask is, how, how does a child learn how to love? Do children learn how to love in school? I mean, in some levels, I'm sure. Children learn how to love uh, at playgrounds or at libraries. Probably a little bit here and there. But ultimately, they're going to learn how to love from their parents. They learn how to love from what they see. They learn how to, lo they learn how to love based on what their day-to-day -day interactions are with the people who have the greatest influence over them. A child who's raised with their parents will be inevitably influenced by them in every day of their lives. So we can imagine save the, the fallen nature of humanity, a child who is well-loved by their parents is often more likely to be a loving person themselves. So if we're, if we're, if we're discouraged right now, if we're, if we're shaking the can of love in our hearts and we're only hearing a couple kernels bouncing around, the question we have to ask isn't, man, why am I so lousy at loving people? The question we have to ask is, how has my father demonstrated his love 
to me? How, how am I moved and affected by the love of my father, the God who has inevitably influenced me in every area of my life just by me being alive, just, my, just by me having the experience of his spirit, just by me being affected by his word, just by me spending time with his people. How is the love of God shaping my love for others? And that's when, honestly, things get exciting for us. That's when we get to explore. Because when we think about what the depths of God's love are for us, it's not a kiddie pool. It's not shallow. It's rich and it's deep to explore the multitude of ways that God has loved us. Let's just, let's just count them off. Yeah, easy ones. Our sins are forgiven. That's great. We don't have to carry the junk that we bring up in our lives with us. Our sins are forgiven. Our plates are cleaned. Our shame is gone. The shame and the attack of, of an evil one who wants to see us destroyed. Like, we can't be touched by that stuff. That's great news. We have hope for the future ahead of us. Like, like the love of God should not be a love that just gives us joy for today. It should give us tremendous hope for tomorrow as well. The fullness of the gospel has not yet been seen. There has not yet been a last war, but there will be. There has not yet been the last bit of bloodshed, but there will be. The last heartbreak, the last disappointment, but those will come to pass. Those will fade from the world that we see and we're ushered into a place of grace. There's a lot to explore in the love of God. There's a lot to experience in the love of God. I mean, think of the gospel of John. I love, I love thinking through Jesus's I am statements. They're so encouraging to me because just listen to the things that he calls himself. Living water, bread of life, light of the world. Like, do you understand? Like, he's, what he's saying is, I am everything you need to survive. I'm the bread that you'll eat. I'm the water that you'll drink. I'm the light that will give you life all around you. Jesus is literally saying, I am everything that you need to survive. The love that I give you will give you everything that you need. Whether it's courage to go through hard times or just peace to know that your weaknesses will not separate you from the love that I have. So returning back to my initial question, what keeps us serving? It's him. It's the love of Jesus. If we're stuck in the monotony and the frustration of a persistent life that we feel expects more and more and more out of us, 
the way that we experience life in the midst of that is by looking to him and meditating on the love and the ways that we experience that love. So we don't fixate on our circumstances and throw in the towel like the unforgiving servant did. But you also don't double down on cold, heartless obedience like the church in Ephesus did either. Motivated only by effort and obligation, but absent of the love of God. We fix our eyes on the perfect love of Jesus. The love that he has for you. I have one last story. This is a story from... uh, from a concentration camp in the uh, 40s, maybe 30s. There was a man, his name was Maximilian Kolbe. He was a Polish priest, and he was a prisoner in a concentration camp. He had owned a monastery that was housing Jews in Poland and uh, basically keeping them safe as the Nazis were, you know, looking for as many people to imprison and kill as possible. And he was eventually arrested, taken to an Auschwitz prison, and uh, was living there for a while. A man, a Nazi guard, came to uh, the dorm that he was living at and said that there had been an attempted escape of a handful of prisoners the day before. And that as punishment, they were going to take 10 random prisoners and they were going to uh, execute them. And so um, he picks each of these men, one through nine, and he picks the 10th person. And and I want to ask you, remember the unforgiving servant story as I continue this. He picks the 10th man, another Polish man, and he falls to his knees and he starts weeping. And he says, please, I have a wife and I have children Don't do this. And as the soldiers are picking this man up, this guy, Maximilian Colby, says, let me go in his place. And the the guards are, are thrown off. They're fully taken aback. They say, never thought of anything like this, but they agree. And so they let the man who asked for mercy go, and they take this priest instead He's taken to a starvation bunker where he uh, sits with 10 other men where he's starved and dehydrated for three weeks, every day ministering and praying over all of the men who are dying around him. And after three weeks, he is taken from his bunker and he's given a lethal injection and he dies. And the man that he died for uh, was actually able to es- not, not escape, but he was released from Auschwitz when it was liberated. And this man lived until his early 90s. And he has a quote where he says, where he's reflecting in his old age on this pivotal experience that he had, literally the experience that saved his life. And he said, I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on. The immensity of it, that I, the condemned, am to live and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. 
Is this some kind of dream? Now, I love this story because this random individual, and I don't know him. I obviously, I didn't know him personally. But based on his writings, based on his faithfulness to the church and to the gospel, I can only hope and pray that Maximilian Kolbe, this inconsequential Polish priest in the early 20th century, was so moved by the love of Jesus in his life that when he was given the opportunity to lay his life down so that someone else could live in a perfect reflection of the death of Jesus, he took the opportunity and he did it gladly and with joy. So my, my, my challenge is that when we serve, whatever we do, whether we're serving our city at Cyclovia, whether we're serving our neighbor with, you know, a pie after they move in or have a baby or whatever, whether we're serving our family or whether we're serving a perfect stranger, don't settle for the apathy of cold and mandatory obedience. Don't do anything out of obligation. Eat and drink the love of God and reflect on how it covers over all of our weaknesses, and we have many. Take the water from his fountain of grace and pour it over all that we see. Andy started our series sharing a story about how when people go up into space and see the world as a globe, it, it fills them with grief and sadness. I pray that the opposite would be true for us. Let us gaze not into the world as a globe, but into the face of God and be filled with hope and courage and love. Pray with me, please. Father God, um, Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to be here with you today. Uh, we thank you for the love. We thank you for the love that you have shown us, um, the love of Jesus, um, the sacrifice, the pain that you've had to endure to reconcile with us. Uh, we thank you for everywhere your love can be seen. We thank you for the love that we experience in the, in the friendship of others. We thank you for the love that we experience in the common grace of a, of a good meal and, uh, you know, comfortable shoes and little things like that. And ultimately, Father, we, we look upon the cross as we see it as this great and perfect place where love truly came and we can experience that even today, despite it being 2,000 years from our point in time. Uh, so please encourage us and strengthen us and be with us, Father. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.